0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it every week for almost seven years now. We've been doing it remotely via Zoom for almost a year. we got the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner, this is Cade Massey, faculty at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, co-host here at uh, Wharton Moneyball. We are going to cover a little COVID-19 in the first quarter, as we have been doing since March, and then we've got a couple of quarters. We've got a small sporting event from yesterday to discuss. I suspect most of our conversation will be about Tom Brady's seventh Super Bowl win, but we may have a few other things to say. And in the fourth quarter, our interview segment, we have David Leonard. David is a muckety-muck with the New York Times. He's a senior writer now. He was an opinion writer for a while. He was a business editor, co-founded the, the Upshot, their kind of quantitative approach to news. Done a lot of things at the New York Times. Been there more than 20 years. We have a discussion with him about all things journalism, COVID, sports, Super Bowl. Fun conversation at the end of the show. All right, guys. I'm... Uh, Before we go to the Super Bowl, let's talk a little bit about the setting, the context for the Super Bowl, which is COVID-19. Any news in the past week in particular, catch your eye.
2: I want to talk about a tweet that Ani made actually this week that caught my eye, which was, I think you've been telling us data, Adi, from the beginning that men, all else equal, equal comorbidities are more likely to get severe COVID cases than women. And obviously, there's certainly we know stuff about people that have already had COVID versus not. And you posted an interesting tweet that had to do with the rate of people getting the vaccinations and trying to understand, like maybe in some logical, coherent way. So what is the rationale or objective function that someone's trying to maximize here? And I I thought it was an interesting tweet because, um, you know, regardless of what order you choose to vaccinate people, it is a policy decision. And typically, policy decisions have objective functions, and so I, I just thought your tweet was really interesting, and that that caught my eye amongst I, all the things I had seen.
0: Should I re- recap it for our audience? That would be great. We presumably haven't done it. So I essentially went on the Philadelphia website, which I've been tracking since the beginning, for a couple uh, – once reason, shout out to them, they've had great data and and updated and accurate since the very beginning. But they have a, a sub-tab um, that talks about vaccinate, vaccinations. They've been vaccinated since the end of December. Um, at this point, two-thirds of the vaccinations have gone to women. And here's the kicker. The majority of the vaccinations are between 20 and 44. A couple wow. of people responded accurately that that has to do with the fact that the rollout has been almost exclusively at this point uh, hospital and hospital yeah. affiliates.
3: Yeah, and, that's not and, surprising at all, right?
0: Yeah, so hospital but there's two aspects of it that are surprising. One is that we're still doing hospital. That's it. Come on. It's been six, seven weeks to, to be still stuck in the hospital is, refle- is reflective of an extremely slow rollout. And the second thing is um, what you're really dealing with is this gets to your question is in the hospital. You no, know, frontline. I mean, genuine frontline see patient type uh, hospital worker. Is actually a small fraction, and what they've done is ex- expanded that hospital role so broadly.
3: And I talked about this last week.
0: That includes me. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm vaccinated. To, to people,
3: way. to people who have a research affiliation with the hospital,
0: <laughs> right? And and they've really thrown. I mean, basically, it, it, instead of taking a process, a Simpson would be you know arena based, center based, age generated vaccination plan. We gave all this all the vaccines to the hospitals, and of course, what did they do with it? Hospitalize anyone who comes anywhere near its orbit and it's i don't think it's the right way it's not maximizing anything it's actually quite
3: yeah i know and i mean obviously we can back out an implicit objective function from what they've done i mean in general with policy government with policy i mean what you guys were asking for is, well, oh, they should have had an explicit objective function that they maximize as part of their... That's not how public policy typically proceeds, I don't think, right? I mean, it's more of this scattershot. I mean, yeah, retrospectively, there is an implicit objective function,
2: you know. Yeah, I, was just light- a, yeah, I was just even referring to what Adi has been saying all along, that the. I think you said the dominant... If if you could only use one variable to predict serious illness, age would be the largest main effect by far. By far. far. Right. So, number one, how many? I mean, I don't know if this data exists, but how many sixty-five plus workers? Maybe they all have been have not been vaccinated, but twenty to forty-four have. How about the second one? Might be gender. So then, now we have a two-way table. We have male, female, um, and then we've got age. And so, my comment is: even if you were going to go into that population, how much coherency do we have even within those populations?
1: But, but see, how much coherency can we hope for? I mean, I think the only coherence we could hope for is comes from really simple rules. We can't expect coherence from complicated rules. Just but no a rule.
0: very simple rule, Cade, could have worked out here very easily. We could have said to, the, to Philadelphia, I'll use an example, the first thing you do is you, you vaccinate people who are seeing patients, like frontline hospital workers and EMTs and people like that. And then simultaneously, then you open up to say 75 and older outside that while yeah. simultaneously yeah. doing people in the hospital yeah. what we did here is we're going to get everybody involved with the hospital even tangentially like me and then when but, that's but, all but, done but but, Adi, we'll that's,
1: you, but why is that so that's because they're they're operating within the constraints that have been imposed on them and what they're becoming is the hub they're just becoming a hub yeah. and they're broadening the criteria to include as many people as possible constrained by the fact that they are a hub so really, I can't. I mean, I don't blame them at all. Yeah, and it's it, just a, it, they become the de facto distribution system. And, so they have to and, l- relax the standards.
3: And a, and again, I mean, obviously, we can all agree they don't have an explicit objective function that they are coherently optimizing nope. like the government ever has done that. You know. <laughs> Right, but but anyway, regardless, I mean, you could define, you know, whatever implicit objective function they're actually kind of optimizing with their practice. Well, I'm not even saying like like age is of course the number one predictor of whether or not you 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 are, are going to have serious I- issues with COVID. But that's only one part of. Even if we were to define an explicit objective function that we want to optimize, you know, your probability of dying of COVID is only one part of it. Your probability of spreading COVID is another big part of it. And, and maybe actually hitting a bunch of 20 to 40-year-olds is not such a bad thing.
1: Well, let me, on that point, let me just jump you know, in. Your, for we, that part
3: of the objective function.
1: We had a mailbag question this week on exactly that. So let's just get your, because we've talked about this before, but it's been a little while. Just real quickly, your thoughts on this. This comes from Paul McKay, in Greenville, PA. And he basically asked that very question. It's like, would it be better to vaccinate, quote, those more likely to get and or transmit the virus or those most likely to die from the virus? Yeah. So he's basically asking what the goals are, and so real, real quickly, what is the logic here, and do we have a position? Has the CDC had a position on that? Do we see any governmental entities with a position on that particular question? And if so, why? Like, what, what do you guys know about that question? From- uh, I'm going
0: I'm to start by proposing the only reason why you would you would vaccinate spreaders is if you believe the vaccine cuts down on spreading, and is, and one of the great mysteries of this is I believe it does. I think almost every virologist believes it does that if you get vaccinated you won't spread it even though it's technically not studied yet and it's not hard to but they won't admit that there's this there's this mystery statement that we don't know if you uh, w- whether you yeah. can spread it even if you don't get it and so they haven't um they haven't admitted that yet when you when a push comes to shove you look at it that seems to be how it's operating because otherwise mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to you, you don't really need to to uh, to vaccinate 20 to 40 45 year olds no matter where they are unless you mm-hmm. expect them to not spread it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I w- the only comment I was going to make, uh, Kate, in our earlier discussion was that I know here where I live in Montgomery County, they just literally I read an article today that they don't have enough vaccine for frontline healthcare workers because they broaden things too quickly to people 65 plus. That and right? so that's when I start to say, you know what, I can put a little blame on that from that point of view. In other words, yeah. you know, there could be a very healthy 66 year old where she or he is under very low risk, and instead a frontline worker is still waiting. And it's purely – it's because of shortage. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not blaming necessarily Montgomery County. I'm blaming the fact that the distribution, they just don't have enough doses, I, you know, again. Yeah, it,
3: no, and, and I mean I, I think, you know, again, if we kind of agree – I mean I don't even know if we are yet agreeing that like you – You know, Adi, a a few minutes ago, almost produced, uh, like, proposed kind of a parallel track where you're kind of hitting both the people that are most likely to die from COVID, the the older generation, as well as people like frontline workers who are the most likely to spread. But it's a logistical challenge, you know, it's a logistical challenge to make sure you've got enough vaccines to cover both simultaneously at the kind of local level. So you're going to probably have these kind of inefficiencies or, like, you know, types of things popping up all over the place.
0: Actually, the way they handled it in Montgomery County is they split healthcare workers into tiers. And in Montgomery County, the first tier healthcare workers were vaccinated in December. Um, And so when they say frontline health worker, they're not talking about the EMTs who actually go free people up at their houses and the doctors who actually treat COVID patients. They're talking about, quite honestly, they're talking about people who kind of are on the edges. Mm
2: -hmm. I've I've got a little, I don't want to call it a game, but I've I've got a game we're going to play. And maybe we'll do this every week while we're still doing COVID. And the name of the game is what's the one question about COVID you wish you had the answer to? <laughs> and so I'm going to go first. And, you got, and we can decide if whether we want to do this every week. Here's my question. Would it be okay to vaccinate twice the number of people once mm-hmm. than, every, than a smaller number of people twice? I wish we had the answer to that question. I wish if it's true that we know one shot of Johnson & Johnson because it is one shot. But mm-hmm. let's, say, let's say Pfizer or Moderna. It, could you if it's 80 percent, maybe not 95, but 80 percent after three weeks, would we be better having instead of 10 percent of the U.S. population, which Shane and I were talking about off air done, but 20 percent of the population or it wouldn't be 20 because not everyone's gotten two shots. But let's say 15 to 17 percent. Would that be better? That's the question I wish I had the answer to. So I'm playing this game every week on the show. You guys can ask your questions, but I wish we had the answer to that one.
1: Let me, just, right. let, let me point out one thing about the nature of your game there, Eric. And this, is, this it turns on value of information. Information's more valuable when its revelation will change your actions. And so what should drive the, the question that you choose is, is 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 your decision points
2: mine would so, change the action
1: yeah that's right so you've chosen something that it, if it turns out one way would lead to very different decision making than if it turns out another way so that's right. that's the right way to approach coming up with answers to eric's question guys i'll, I'll play a game with you um uh, what's the chance tell me what you think the chance the difference in the chances of being um, vaccinated between citizens of the state that have the lowest efficacy in getting vaccinations in arms versus citizens of states who have the highest efficacy of getting vaccinations in arms. What's the difference? What's the difference in the probability? Like, it's just like percentage of population that's being, that has been administered a vaccine
2: Oh, I I'm gonna guess five hundred percent difference right now. I think there are some states that could be as low as three or four percent, and then there are other states that are as high as fifteen to twenty percent right now. So I'm guessing five hundred percent difference.
0: Other people? Audi just heard. I me think say it's lower than that, that because most of them have gotten their healthcare workers, and I don't think anybody's even yet at ten percent.
3: You mean a single shot? No, no, no Audi, we mean? know the national we know nationally it's, it's shot, at like nine. So, percent yeah. or above nine percent it's
1: nine one shot in their arm yep yeah okay so you okay, mean so so one shot yeah this is this is why it's worth every now and then we need to just come back to some i gave old, my
2: number i'm sticking with 500 percent.
1: i yeah, would
3: it, i mean it, i think it's over 100 200 yeah, percent. yeah i, I don't I think, the think the lowest right is, now is
0: probably yeah. around five percent and the highest is probably around 15 so yeah
1: that's what i would but, go for okay so the the these are fresh from cdc this is today or yesterday's data from CV, cdc and this is any admi- citizens who've had shots administered. Okay. Yeah. The range is a little more narrow than I would have thought it ranges from a low of nine and a half percent in Alabama. That's a low nine and a half is the low to 20% in Alaska. So it's a little bit more than a hundred percent difference from from yeah the, i
0: would have thought it was lower on the other side i think that's there there are states every state is over nine percent of well, having how a can shot the
1: mark.
2: average be 9.7 and that the doesn't make any sense 9.5 it's, it's, yeah it's i was trying to think is there some kind of weird simpsons
3: paradox thing going on here that i can't <laughs> no, kind of you quickly can't, the average yeah. can't you know be lower yeah.
2: than uh I, higher than the much but it can't, pay, can't be the same as the minimum yeah, yeah. don't somebody that's sounds that, funny about that
1: well i've got these are literally downloaded today posted yesterday cdc numbers the the numbers oh i think the nine point the overall average is, is
0: the population average and because california new york florida texas are so much of the population
3: whatever their average oh, is could there is be an issue with denominator like you yeah know, like uh, uh, you know because you know the denominator is not nine percent is like the number of people nine percent of people in the u.s like actual people right it's not, like people it's not the average versus the like people are not average
2: of the states yeah
3: Right, I don't know if there's some kind of
2: weird. I thing still with even find that number figures. hard to believe.
0: I find I, it. I don't. I don't them. think Massachusetts is, has uh, has vaccinated nine percent of their population. That may, I can't believe that. That's not I what I'm they, reading. They
1: reported eleven eleven thousand per hundred thousand have been administered. Hmm.
2: Hmm. Well, that last time I checked, that's a, over eleven yeah. yeah. <laughs> percent. <laughs>
3: So this thanks is thanks for running me. that number real quick for us, Eric. Yeah, great. But well, you know,
2: yeah, Eric,
0: I want to respond to one thing because I talked about this with my doctor friend, so I watched the Super Bowl with yesterday. Um, the JJ, so hold on, Audie,
1: Audie, but real quickly before we change gears. So what do we make of that? A couple of things. One, I went into it thinking this is a mm-hmm. lot of variance. This is like two to one. You're twice as likely to be vaccinated if you're if you're if you're in Alaska than if you're in Alabama. But y'all are saying actually that's actually tighter than I might have thought. I think probably true for me too that everybody out there. It's around 11, 10, 11% for many states. And so it's much, it's much more equitable than I thought it was.
0: No, I think you have to look at it differently. You have to think about it conditionally on your age. So if you're 65, that's a good question. In 65, what is your probability of getting vaccinated across all the states? And I would guess in Alaska, it's probably 100%. And in Massachusetts, it's probably about 20% at this point. And that's a pretty big sw- swing. And actually, I'll argue it's probably less than that in Massachusetts, say 10%. So
1: once you condition on on certain categories, the, these stats are going to become more. Yeah, because nobody,
0: 25 no, year olds have been ignored. I mean, there are some in healthcare, but who have been. But but if you think about it by age, that's where the spread really is matters. And it's big. If, um, so if you're over 75, I think most states have gotten to everyone over 75. By the way, at least I'm looking, headway.
2: I don't know. Okay, I'd say, by the way, I'm looking at maybe the same thing. It's from the CDC. And percent population given one dose, I'm seeing Alabama, maybe I'm reading this wrong, at 7.7%, and the United States average being the one that Cade said 9.7, and Pennsylvania is at 8.7.
1: The, you must have older data because my, all my numbers are higher, downloaded from the CDC. No, I see. I think a, the
2: data you're looking at might be the dist- – I'm uh, I'm looking at the CDC data. This is saying distributed per 100,000. I'm looking at – is your number the percent given at least one dose? Given, given. Huh, okay, because sure. the number I'm seeing is dated today from the CDC. Um, I'm just saying – either way, it, it's it, – it Yeah. Either way, it's uh,
0: so I I wanted to make a comment related to Eric's kind of question he really wants to know the answer to, because you said we know the J&J vaccine works with one dose. Well, actually, um, it turns out that the J&J decided they made an executive decision that it's best in order to get the vaccine approved as quickly as possible to do only one dose. And Pfizer and Moderna made a decision that they would do two in their in their system. There is no, nothing about the J&J vaccine that says it's going to work with one dose and nothing about the Pfizer or Moderna that requires two. All these vaccines generally require boosters. The question is, should they skip it just to get it out there for emergency use? And, and J&J made a, a decision to skip it and report their results after one. And Pfizer said, you know, we're going to add two, three, four weeks onto the end of the trial and squeeze a second booster in if we do it quickly, which is an unheard of speed for a booster. But do so we well, have data? I I did, do we actually have,
2: I know you've, you've reported this a little bit on it, but do we actually know if you only had one shot of Pfizer and Moderna, let's say after three or four weeks? Isn't, aren't you at like 80, 82%? Isn't that what you so, said?
0: Okay. So there's some data out of Israel, which, which basically paid three times as much for a vaccine as you're supposed to and got all of it real quick in exchange for data. That's basically what they sold. Um, suggests that it is protective um, between weeks two and three with just one shot. Maybe 60 to 80 percent. But when I, I say what we know and what we don't know, vaccines are supposed to work with one dose and they get stronger and stronger until they kind of weaken out. And the booster shots are there to it's a selection mechanism where the the antibodies that are strongest are the ones that are have survived a certain amount of distance and they get amplified in the second booster. This is absolutely uncharted territory with what Pfizer and Moderna have done. And if you just look at what historical vaccines do, you're supposed to provide a decent amount of protection with one dose, and they, would, they, and they need to be boosted at after about four to six months. I think the Moderna and Pfizer ones do provide, will provide plenty of protection after about six weeks after we, the initial shot.
2: Yeah, here's another question. Do we know what, just from the data, this isn't a question I want to know the answer to, but do we know what fraction of the people that have been injected had COVID before? So again, Mm. let's go back to the question of if we want to develop herd immunity as quickly as we can, and right now they're reporting 40-something million people, like almost 20% of the U.S. population has tested positive for COVID, which means the number is probably significantly higher, is how much of this 10% given to the U.S. population are people that already have some degree of immunity? I'd like to know that too.
1: I mean, I would say a little base rate, rate, right? If you
0: if you had to ask me what my question is, like the one if I got a secret an oracle that gave me the answer to one question on COVID, my my answer would be um, what degree of protection does having COVID give you? Um, because yeah, that's we what I was just saying. Yeah, because if it was a lot, if the answer was a lot, it would mean we'd have a lot fewer arms to jab into
1: than what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, we'd be quicker to herd immunity we yes. have those guys layered on top of the vaccinations that we're getting out now um I'm curious if you guys saw the wall street journal article i think it came out a little bit more than we could go on a study done on the nfl so rolling into the super bowl it was kind of a, a review of the season and and by the way we four should be humble about the fact that all the major sports pulled off their championships in a pretty legitimate way <laughs> and we were deeply skeptical this summer that that was going to happen so Kudos to them. Obviously the NFL pulled theirs off this weekend, but they had a, you know, extensive program, obviously. And there's been some coverage here at the end of the season about kind of what they did, right. What did they wrong. There's some, some credit given to the Seahawks for some innovations that they did up there in Seattle that the rest of the teams copied. Curious if y'all saw that in your reactions to what they learned across the NFL.
0: Uh, so i am i happy to jump in. They, they spent, they spent a lot of time talking about the surprises in the sense that there were people who seemed to have gotten infected with fairly short interactions. And there was a lot of hay made about um, the revision of the standard for quarantine, which suggested that you needed to be unprotected for 15 minutes indoors with someone to to be at significant risk of getting COVID. When they looked at people who actually got infected and they found that there were individual cases who clearly spent less time um, with people who, uh, and ended up with COVID. So they made a lot of hay out of that. What I found sort of surprising listening to the, listen to the coverage is that there was all this effort uh, paid to people who got COVID. But as any good poker player knows, there's far more interesting data where, when you look at what people didn't do and rather what they did do. So what I was much more curious to know is, look at the people who didn't get COVID and what did they do of course, they're much more numerous, so it's, it's hard to pin them down. And did any of them spend considerable amount of time with people and not get COVID? Um, so th- th- those questions were left unanswered, and maybe someone will come back and look at it.
1: So Adi, in, in most circumstances, we don't observe them, and we wouldn't know whether they were exposed or not. But it turns out that in the NFL, because of contact tracing... Mm -hmm. they have a sense of they could look at the folks who were exposed but didn't contract and that would be fascinating i mean in some cases some some teams for example had um monitoring devices and phones that they knew exactly who was around who for what length of time Mm -hmm. and it's the kind of the perfect environment to study the question you're asking
2: yep really valuable data to have Mm -hmm. I, i agree
1: so there's been a lot of talk in the NBA, um, a lot of grousing recently in, about the protocols and the cost that it's imposing on everybody. And it's just changed you know, their lives, essentially. And now it's not changed for, what was the bubble, like a month, six weeks down there? And every week they went by, some teams left. And so it affected fewer and fewer people. But now we've got a full, you know, whatever it is, six-month season with these protocols. And have you heard the hell of Lou about the All-Star game? So here comes the NBA, you know, after imposing all these protocols and they want to play the All-Star game, which is kind of the yeah. perfect recipe for, you know, let's get this thing going again. Let's get the pandemic rank, cranked back up in the NBA. Let's bring people from all over the country, mix them up. I don't know. Anybody, anything interesting coming out of all the NBA stuff lately? I mean, I, I
3: actually Now you bring up the question. I actually don't know whether the NHL has made announcement on their all-star game. It typically occurs around the same time as the NBA, but I would guess given the general strategy and structure of the NHL season, which is all designed to keep teams right. essentially separated by division the entire season. I, I can only imagine that, you know, they could use, they could potentially do four little mini all-star games within division, but they certainly would not want to have a collective game, bringing those populations together. Yes, yeah. That would, kind of undermine their entire seasonal structure right the the nba obviously did not alter their kind of seasonal structure to the same extent so um maybe maybe that makes the all-star game specifically less impactful than an all-star game idea would be in the nhl but mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. it does mm-hmm. seem like a pretty questionable move
1: but guys one last question before we leave covid uh the AstraZeneca was pulled from South Africa because it wasn't doing the job down there with the variant down there. It was just not shown effective, so they stopped use of it. Do we update on that vaccine? This is the Oxford vaccine, of course. Um, do any updates, and does it mean anything for its use in other countries?
2: I, I think it means something. as certainly as they're saying that you know, um, given the uh, the spread. They're predicting that the UK and South African will become the dominant form of virus here, even in the US as well. Right, and so I think, given that, yeah, it has tremendous implications for the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and its and its use here in the US.
3: And have they have they given it uh, the non AstraZeneca vaccines enough to people in South Africa that they've kind of seen that they they still are equally effective?
1: Yeah, let's let's just do a quick update on that because so AstraZeneca really suffers, but we were just a couple of weeks ago getting updates from the Pfizer and Moderna against the South African. And my memory of it is that they were showing that yes, it's less effective against that strain, but you were still getting efficacy in the fifty to sixty percent range.
2: Correct, that's what I remember
3: as well. Yeah. Okay,
2: and
1: yeah, uh, so there's a couple. of goodness they-
3: for multiple vaccines, guys. Am I right? Yeah, I mean,
0: <laughs> even the AstraZeneca vaccine seems to be preventative of serious illness. So they noticed that the infection rates were pretty high in South Africa, but they weren't getting serious illness. This is the higher rate um, against South Africa. I think all the effectiveness is kind of are lower against the South African strain, not the British strain, mm-hmm. because that's all over Israel. That dominates. That's what there is in Israel is the British strain. Okay. And and what you've seen there is just incredibly high um, infection rates, even throughout the vaccination rollout. And in fact, something like, of the new cases are all everyone young because everyone else has been vaccinated and they're just getting sick. You know, they're not getting sick. They're getting positive cases. Um, So the British variant seems to be well protected by the Pfizer and Moderna. The AstraZeneca, we don't really know that much. We'll see uh, in coming months.
1: Okay. All right. Well, fellas, that is a pretty good tour of what's going on in coronavirus this week. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll report back to you next time. We still have some sports to talk about directly ahead. Come back and join us.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. Got the whole crew here via Zoom and rolling into the second quarter. Open lines, we used to say. Open topic, though clearly we're going to talk about the Super Bowl. Guys, super interesting day, super interesting evening. Very curious to get your thoughts. Some of you are very happy right now. Some of you don't hear that much. What are your thoughts on the circle, guys? Eric, you
2: got it. Uh, you, you've, earned, I, you've Well, first, uh, obviously, obviously I've been waiting 19 years for this. Um, I've been waiting too. I guess my first. Re- <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I guess my first reaction is you know maybe all the whether it's the Massey Peabody numbers, whether it's the, what we had seen throughout the uh, the last eight weeks to ten weeks of the season, I think Kansas City just wasn't that good. I think that's what it was. I think the Bucs played an extraordinarily great game. But at the end of the day, we got, you know, something reasonable within the Kansas City distribution of play. They didn't play extraordinarily well. Matter of fact, I maybe the best game they played all The last 10 games of the season was against Buffalo. And other than that, they haven't looked that fantastic. Cleveland absolutely had a shot to beat them. And I don't think Cleveland is one of the great teams of all times. So um, I think the Bucs played in a fantastic game. And it reminded me, I have to admit, it reminded me of the Super Bowl where the Giants beat the Patriots, where, you know, the Patriots had the greatest offense in the history of the NFL that season. I think Brady threw for, what, 55 touchdowns. And they were 17-0 and 0 going into the game. And the, the, the front four of the Giants absolutely wrecked the, yeah. the Patriot line. And that's what happened here. You know, in Dominique- you would, you, you,
3: But you wouldn't, based on that game, go back and say, well, the 2007 Patriots just weren't that good.
2: No, 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 no. I think the Giants were a really, really, really good defense. No, and and I'm not convinced this was a great Buccaneer defense. I wouldn't put this in the top 10 defenses of all time in the NFL history. I would not.
3: I might not either, but I do think this was a great defense that, that got hot at the right time. And and I mean, I think the Chiefs are one of the better teams I've seen over the last, say, five seasons or so. But, you know, they had they had O-line injuries. And, and it, I think it does go to show that, you know, even a, a, a great team by kind of contemporary standards, if you get the wrong matchup and you have a couple key injuries, you can really be exposed. And it's certainly Casey was exposed. And I mean, it was interesting. I mean, of course, we we will we do we'll talk a lot about brady and, and and all that stuff but i was just so amazed by how dominated uh casey was on both sides of the line both sides of the ball so it, it, was, so it, was, it was really about take, the line let's, play
1: let's take one at a time i mean the yeah. the the, the... K- the Tampa defensive line versus Kansas city's offensive line. I'd love to know the breakdown between you mentioned a few different possibilities. One is yeah. just a bad matchup. You know, maybe it's a Casey weakness versus a Tampa strength. How much of it was the injuries and how much of it was being out coached. I mean, these guys, it wasn't just that they, you know, roll those got guys out there and said, play hard. I mean, they had, yeah. a scheme. they were, they were doing things. They were stunting in certain ways. They were calling plays. It was partly coaching. And by the way, Andy Reid, who people laud and ought aud- to, Autolod. Yeah. Didn't have answers for them. And the whole game of football is about having answers for the other guy's answers and they didn't have it. So I'm, I don't know what the breakdown is between those things. Yeah. No great D line that got better all year long versus injuries on the Casey line versus the defensive plan was just money.
2: I can tell you what the Buccaneers said before the game and after the game. And I'll tell you what Patrick Mahomes agreed to Um, the Buccaneers after the game said, we thought there was no way that this team would be patient enough if we took the long ball away and the outside away that they're going to do a 10-12 play drive every time down the field. According to the Bucks language was they're a gimmicky big play team. We take away those plays and they're not going to be patient enough. And after the Jeez. game Patrick Mahomes said, "You know what? They're right. I didn't have the patience to want to do these long 6 yards here, 5 yards there. I'm looking for the big play every time." And so I think the Buccaneers had exactly the right game plan, and also I agree with you, Cade. I think Andy Reid did not adjust. You're yeah. telling me you can't get Sammy Watkins or Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey open on eight to ten yard slants. You can just do ten of them in a row, and you will score the football. <laughs> or a screen. Looking, or just a, sc- right a screen,
3: or throw a screen or two. As a matter
2: of fact, I don't remember them throwing many no. screens in the game either. Nothing. Which,
3: which is, you know, I mean, I don't know a lot about the real X's and O's of scheming, but it does seem to be a common thing teams too, when, you know, they can't handle pressure, they take advantage of the pressure. Right. And I agree. I mean, I think they, I mean, obviously I think, you know, Tampa Bay did diagnose that impatience or complacency or, or I think just over like they've, they've gotten, they take for granted Mahomes ability to do those big plays and to kind of in the face of pressure, always kind of scramble enough to make those big plays. And I mean, they, it was, even by Mahomes' standards, it was an undue amount of pressure. I mean, I think you well, know it, it was a record just, for the number of pressure on dropbacks. That's
1: right, and it wasn't the thing. Is it, it didn't come from blitzing? I mean, the Tampa Bay yeah. defense is famous for its blitzing, and they, they it's like a record low number for those guys. Yeah. They played yeah. two high safety. They rushed four guys. The most ever rush was five. They almost barely rushed five, so they were getting all that pressure with four guys. And, and I you think you do a lot more when you got yeah and I, and I
3: think that's kind of the source of some of Casey's complacencies because I doubt over the last couple of years they've faced that many teams that have the personnel where they can do that I mean and this is what I do think Tampa what makes Tampa Bay's defense maybe not historically great but certainly great in that it in this particular matchup is the ability to still have that kind of pressure while just rushing four players. I mean, that's the key.
2: I think a lot of things happened between the two games that they played. Let me say the couple things from a Bucs fan point of view. Number one, a huge addition back to the team was Vitavea. That was a huge impact with him coming back in the center of the line. First of all, mm-hmm. nobody could run the football once he came back, and he was getting massive pressure up the middle. That's number one. Number two, Eric Fisher got injured in the Buffalo game. They're star player. So now they had a guy that basically hadn't played all season that started. They had to shift two yeah. other guys around in the line. Yeah. That had to have a huge impact. Yeah. The third part is, I assume this is just a law, a law of physics thing. No matter who you are, if you're running and throwing on the run, as opposed to stepping into the football, you cannot get as much from the ball. The one thing the Bucks do have is tremendous speed. And the Bucks were catching up. Every ball Mahomes threw from outside the pocket, a defender would get there at the time. It wasn't mean that the guy wasn't open. He wasn't open when the ball got there. Yeah. And so they had tremendous back-end speed to be able to break up plays. You know, Eric, no, it's I mean, a really I, interesting
1: point. I, I, I remember thinking in the middle, maybe, not, maybe the second half of the game, I was thinking, and I didn't put it together, but I was thinking that, that mahomes velocity didn't look that impressive on a lot of his throws. agreed but you're right everything was off balance.
3: I, I will i will sort of say I, i'm only going to push back a couple of the throws he did make were kind of physics defying oh
1: no question like I mean, that, that that one was
3: that that one where he was basically parallel to the ground yes. and threw it 30 yards if that was caught that was the greatest throw of all it would have been the greatest play yes
1: of all. and the thing about that play shane we had already been talking the entire game yeah about all the different positions from which he was throwing the ball. I mean, it was a total out of sample predicted yeah. event. I mean, honestly, I would love a cut up. He threw the ball something like 56 times. How much would you love to see a cut up of all the different positions of yeah. when he what well, he would hey, do, hey, oh, hey. and and contrast that with the positions that Brady was in? When he threw the ball, Brady's no. cut up would look like the same uh, picture shot over and over again. No, and I mean, I think Michael, like, Lope, like a
3: gymnast. Michael Lopez did, you know, and I mean, this is something where I mean, and again, I can't wait for advanced analytics to continue to progress in the NFL because, I mean, one, one kind of minor next gen stat that I think I saw, I think Michael Lopez uh, poses this, is, um, you know, the, they tracked the ball tracking. Mahomes, I think, ran 497 yards behind the line of scrimmage yesterday. Yes. Yeah,
1: so, you mean, after, before throwing a ball? before exactly. throwing the ball between snap and throwing his passes yeah <clears throat> almost and and, and, Bra-
3: and brady i think ran something like 10 you know i mean you know 34
1: and- something like that it's just yeah. unbelievable and yeah. moreover lopez put a did a data visualization all he did was put all those 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 motion tracking lines for yeah. every single pass they put he put he put mahomes on the top and brady's on the bottom and mahomes is like elaborate flower is about 25 times the size of brady's little bitty and he just didn't have to move around. Eric. Yeah. And
2: is, is there any way, look, obviously the Bucs dominated the game, but could you make an argument? Maybe, maybe this doesn't happen as much in football because the Bucs look like the better team yesterday. But let's imagine the holding call doesn't happen in the second quarter. And the one that the Bucs made at 14-3 to is picked off by uh, Tyron Matthew. Let's imagine the pass interference. Maybe it happened against Mike Evans. Maybe it didn't. Let's imagine that one's not called. Let's imagine the other pass interference on Matthew in the end zone where the ball was thrown 15 yards over the end, back of the end zone. Let's imagine that one wasn't called. Is it possible that (laughs) the game would have ended up differently? If those three calls, like in other words, the bucks aren't up 14 to three because that drive is stopped. Um, The bucks don't go up 21 to six at the half because that 50 yard pass interference or 40 yard pass interference call wasn't made. Is there any scenario where I kept thinking to myself, Oh, my God, if this is 14 to six at the half with the way the Bucks seems to have dominated this game, I'm really, really nervous. Once they got up 21 to six, I was like, you know what? I, I don't see how they're going to stop them. So I'm just thinking, while the game seemed 31 to nine. I could change two or three plays and make an argument that it wasn't that far different.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that you could have had that butterfly effect because, I mean, again, we we did sort of just slam Andy Reid a little bit for not kind of doing that half t- – you know, I was disappointed that he did not do halftime adjustments such that they kind of focused on more kind of, you know, long – like like short short plays, longer drives, like going less for the big play. Being down by 15 points already at the start of the second half does – you know you know they they wouldn't have had a lot of opportunity to do that especially because they couldn't stop the run of the tampa bay buccaneers on the other side you know i mean so so it really did kind of put them on a short clock as far as trying to change their strategy to adapt to the pressure that mahomes was facing yeah
1: that's right i think that's the only argument you have because i mean i still do
3: think with that dominance on both sides yeah they they look so dominated
1: but maybe if the defensive line couldn't just pin back ears, knowing they were going to pass maybe if that weren't the case which it wouldn't have been had they been a little closer it would have been different but it's hard to see you know casey you see them all we've seen them for three years now they will they'll sputter in the beginning and then they'll catch fire and they'll just blow past people so it doesn't matter if they're down 10 fit town 10 down 14 whatever it did not feel like that at any moment last night it just felt different like i did not ever think that they were going to catch uh catch fire and blow past those guys they just they were being beaten i think they were being beaten almost really the first drive the first drive it's like, oh, man, you just don't see KC shut down. Well,
2: like just it. relatedly, does this then have an impact? You know, this is what they always say after the Super Bowl. So now someone has figured out the formula. Like, we didn't know this formula. But someone has figured out the formula to beat these high offensive teams. Like, does this change? Do you think, given the NFL draft and everything, does this change at all? Like, are the um, – not Chase Young, last year, the number two pick from Ohio State. Yeah. Does this start to raise – defensive ends like maybe we should start thinking because i just saw mel kuyper's mock draft and it now has three wide receivers in the top 10 Devontae smith at two jamar chase at three and jalen waddle at six yeah, right. i'm just no i'm just saying and we've talk, and by the way it has fields not even not only the second quarterback taken he's now third they have zach wilson from byu at number four so i get yeah. three quarterbacks in the top 10 but are we really going to be now where we're going to have three receivers out of the top six picks? Is but that I mean, really? I, I, I don't.
3: I don't know what the variance year to year and kind of that transcendent interior D line talent is. Right. I mean. I, I mean. I, I think. Yeah. If you can get the Chase Youngs or the Aaron Donalds, I mean, those guys are usually selected high up. Well, Aaron Donald right? was number well, one. let's
1: let's not mix interior and edge because I do think there's a difference, right. and people would say that that interior pressure is actually more disruptive and it possibly is harder to find mm-hmm. but i'm kind of walking out on a limb there but first i want to say no and, and i this, mean this is i mean the, the the i i i want to not draw too many conclusions given the injuries to the kc line i mean it's i it's a real shame about the game really that you just didn't see you didn't see a full strength contest and the biggest disruption of the whole night was exactly where the kc was weakest because of its injuries and so we ought to be a little careful but i think you raise a great point eric because we've been sitting here watch watching offenses get better and better and taking over the game and scoring go through the roof and we're like our defense is just throwing up their hands is there ever going to be any answer to this and eric's saying well maybe the answer is a transcendent rush of some kind now i don't know how you manufacture it but if you can manufacture it like the bucks did last night and that's a way to shut it down. They held one of the best offenses any have ever seen for years yep. now without a touchdown in the yeah. Super
3: Bowl. Amazing. And and I, I do think this is the other thing where I really would love to sort of, again, see, you know, have, you know, next-gen stats kind of become a, even more prominent is actually studying, like, quarterback movement in the face of pressure. Mm-hmm. Because one mm-hmm. thing that I've sort of observed with Patrick Mahomes, and again, he is incredible athlete and does uh, throw, makes passes that i i can't even almost conceive of at times but he has this habit i think in the face especially of interior pressure of just running backwards Mm backwards yes running backwards and he apparently this was something that i guess i've been reading now it was was something that was kind of seen as a weakness of his game even back in college is that his response to pressure is to basically flee it i mean that's a natural response to pressure (laughs) but but i mean just compare and contrast with brady's you know like brady kind of a lot of quarterbacks with pressure somehow have you know at least the skill or the experience to sort of step up or step at an angle where they escape without having to run backwards because running backwards really I mean it takes whatever o-line remnant you have during that play it takes them completely out of it and then it just becomes this foot race and you have to if you're Patrick Mahomes make these acrobatic passes that most quarterbacks wouldn't even conceive of doing
1: it's, it surely must be fair, and we. But like you said, you started that by saying, "Let's look at the next gen stats." No, the next so gen I would stats like Would tell us very precisely. Is, is but, this a
3: particular, you know, thing that, like, you know, Patrick Mahomes is partic- Perhaps people with mobility, like Patrick Mahomes, one sort of like weakness that we're kind of not realizing because we don't can't quantify it is like you know their response in particular to interior pressure yeah, so versus I, I, other I, I, quarterbacks' response great- would be worth studying.
1: It's a great question, but I'm a little skeptical that that was a very big factor last night. I mean, the Bucks were getting free runners, repeatedly no, yeah. getting free runners at him. And he jukes people. I mean, he's got, he's got more wiggle than the average quarterback. I agree,
2: so- I agree with you also, Kate. I think something seemed you – know, we know he's got the foot injury, and maybe, maybe he didn't have the full zip. Even the balls he threw didn't look like they had the zip on them that mm-hmm. – other that I've seen from other throws of his. I understand that he had some throws like that one when he was like totally horizontal and he made a throw, which the guy should have caught. It was right into his helmet, but it just didn't look like him. His arm strength didn't look like what I had seen. Um, And, you know, maybe it's the fatigue of the season. Maybe it's, he had been hit already 15 to 20 times already in that game. Maybe it was what happened in the game where he was knocked out. Maybe, you know, maybe his neck issue. Cause you know, mm-hmm. i i still say, I don't know. How, I don't know that he got a concussion in the traditional sense. Like his head didn't hit the ground. He might have some nerve issue in his neck or something. It just, something didn't look right physically about him.
1: Well, Eric, I wish we could quantify that. We've talked about, I mean, Shane we, was just asking for NGS. Well, we can, it can, and it's known, but no, it's I not mean, shared. It's not yeah, NFL yeah. has this policy prohibiting, pass velocity being shared and it's a shame because otherwise we could nail this down quite precisely. i mean
3: i know and a real a simple question would just be what speed was or what is his passes last night yeah. versus they usually that's right. are
1: that's right that's right yeah. okay speaking of arm strength 43 year old guys aren't supposed to still have arm strength so what what did y'all take away from brady's performance last night and and, and just flipping the sides of the ball so in general the bucks are O versus the kcd
2: I'm not sure I've upgraded my belief on Brady in the following sense. He made all the throws that I would call a very good quarterback would make. Um, He missed a deep ball in the end zone to the backup tight end. He missed that throw to Evans. He overthrew Evans. Um, I I actually haven't upgraded my belief. I think there were and Shane and I were talking about this, we shouldn't have, but we talked about it a little bit before the show. I think the way that the Buccaneers' defense and offensive line play last night, I'm going to say there's 10 quarterbacks, at least in the NFL, that could have won that game last night for for the Buccaneers. Wow. And I'm just giving you my opinion. And so I I think Tom Brady had a great first half. He was accurate. He didn't put the ball in stupid places. When he had to get rid of the ball, he got rid of the ball. And he didn't miss. He did not miss. And you know what? There aren't a lot of quarterbacks, even for the needed throws that are as accurate as he was last night. In the second half, who cares? They were just going to run the ball. Yeah, and I mean, it, anybody could do. have handed the he ball. he could have off. thrown for 400 yards if he wanted to in that game. But he didn't need to.
0: So let me just throw this out as a question. How many times do teams win when their defense limits the opponent to nine points? The answer is probably a whole lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I watched Brady. He he seemed to never have to move out of the pocket. Apparently he never did. Um, And it was just pretty straightforward throw. And, of course, it was good. Sure. not And, you know, he didn't make the mistakes and top of the line. But, you know, Mahomes, and one of the things that I reflected on is that Mahomes' stock doesn't didn't seem to have diminished based on the performance of last night. Um, because he just was co- so constantly pressured and and forced to run and and was just never able to to get his grip. And I really like Mike Salfino's line about Sam Darnold. He says that guys had to deal with that every game of his career. Seriously, <laughs> yes. I mean, this is like
1: this is great context. You take this stuff mm-hmm. for granted until you see a guy in a different context. Like, oh, it's not all Mahomes. He's also mm-hmm. got a pretty nice cast around him. Shane,
3: well, I, I you know I, I I do want to sort of say that. I mean, I, I, again. It, not that many teams can win only scoring nine points, but if this thing was going into the you know fourth quarter at like you know ten to nine or twelve to nine or fourteen to nine, I think it easily could have had a very different result. And and Brady was the one that got him to twenty eight in the first half. And so I mean, yeah, I, I don't think he he didn't have a you know mind blowing Super Bowl like some of his has been, but I mean he played mistake free football.
1: Yeah, and basically. I mean to. Me, it did.
3: And, and, and then and then they leaned on the defense. He was not the primary reason they won that game, but he certainly, unlike the Green Bay second half, where it almost seemed like he was actually negatively contributing to the game plan yeah. by throwing those picks, he did not do that in the Super Bowl.
1: And to underscore your point, I mean, it wasn't just the first half, that last drive. You gave the ball back yes. to with a minute left, and they came away with a touchdown. It just – And Brady had a lot. A
2: lot of people would say a great skill of a quarterback is knowing what you need to do to win the game. Brady knew, I really believe that, after very early on that game, Shane, if I don't turn this ball over, I don't fumble it, I don't throw a pick, we're going to win this game. And so he made high percentage throws. Look, you have to look at the tape. As far as I know, there were guys open 40, 50 yards down the field. And Brady's like, why would I do that? I got Fournette for eight. I got Gronk for 15. I got Braid for 15. And you know what? That's the smart Tom Brady. He didn't have to prove anything to anybody.
1: Win so the game. What about the impact a Brady has on a team over the season? This is a good question for Eric, even though we're just speculating. What difference does it make in how hard uh, – defensive lineman works in week eight when he knows he has tom brady on the other side versus he has some quarterback that he doesn't have any confidence in in other words did brady perhaps impact this club by giving them all just a little bit more motivation because they knew that he was good enough to win a super bowl and is it is that not one way by which the truly great players impact a team it's that they increase the motivation and therefore the work and the investment that everybody else makes
2: I completely agree with that, and I also think if you're a defensive player on the box, you're thinking this guy, unlike Jameis Winston last year, is not going to keep putting us in a position where it's first and ten from the from from the our own thirty yard yeah. line. The other team's got the ball, and they only have to drive twenty yards, and there's a touchdown. Brady's just not going to do that. And even even look, Arians talked about it after the game. You're right; he threw three picks against Green Bay. As Arian said, two of them were punts. He threw yeah. them 50 yards down the field. They were picked off. Those aren't, those aren't great interceptions, but those aren't killer interceptions. Remember, early on in the season, we were all worried. Brady led the league in pick sixes. Do you remember that? At one point, he had four straight games. If you go back to the last year, he had four <laughs> straight games with a pick six. Did you see a pick six from Brady in the last 12 games of the season? I don't think he threw any. None. Yeah. Zero. And so, I, yeah, I think people the defense knows – the defense knows that he's not going to put him in a bad position. And I think the offense knows that, like in the Falcon game, he can be down 21 to 6, 28 to 7, whatever it is. And Tom Brady can bring you back, he can do it. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I mean, I,
3: I think it kind of helps like both in the within game kind of defend helps the defense because he's not going to make the the kind of mistakes that gives him the short fields that defenses have a tough time. Even great defenses have a tough time dealing with. And I think on the longer term kind of the season, I mean, I, I think there is something it's very intangible. But but does Vita Vea rush back? Like, I mean, that guy's recovered from a broken leg. Right. To come back. I mean, I did not think that guy was coming back this season and he somehow did, you know, make it back. And I, I, I don't I mean, maybe he would have done that in this counterfactual world where Brady wasn't, you know, giving them hope of actually a Super Bowl run. But maybe he doesn't, you know, in that counterfactual. Also, I don't world. think
2: a lot of teams go from seven and two, which the Bucs were lose three in a row, seven and five, and then sweep the rest of their games of the season. I think I just think that's an extremely difficult thing to do. And let's also remember, I'm putting Patrick Mahomes in the Hall of Fame. He just beat Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes,
1: and, Taylor, so, Heineke and know, Taylor Heineke. I know Taylor
2: Heineke. That isn't so easy. Let's that uh, on the road. No, I mean, it's I incredible was on the home. road. It's incredible, yeah. incredible.
1: Yeah. So uh, we only have thirty seconds or so. But what are the chances that the Chiefs make it back to the Super Bowl next year? Have you updated your beliefs at all? I,
3: I still give them a high probability. I still think they're probably the, the best team in the AFC. But there's a lot of really good up-and-coming teams in the AFC. I think they've got a tougher road than the Tampa
2: Bay actually does for the Super Bowl.
1: Did you reduce your odds based on what happened last night?
2: Yes. Really. Yes. Because I think I, this is the first time I think there could be a bimodal Patrick Mahomes. We may not always see the great one. So, yes, I've reduced my <laughs> probability a little bit.
1: I don't know that I did. I upped it it, on a lot of things, but I'm not sure I I changed it on on the Chiefs. All right, guys, that has been the...
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every week on SiriusXM rolling into the third quarter. Got the whole crew here. Eric, Shane, Adi, and this is Cade. We've just spent uh second quarter talking super bowl we're, we're, we've got a short third quarter here guys that's it for football for a while um the long cold winter is in front of us training camp doesn't start in you know for like six five 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 months or something uh, what are your thoughts coming out of this one any any i'd like to go to each of you and just get any thought it doesn't have to be a global it could be global it could be local it could be about the super bowl it could be about football it could be about the season whatever as we wrap up the season what is uh what's on your mind here Eric.
2: Well, so I'm just thinking as a Buccaneers fan, I'm just starting to think, can they repeat? It hasn't been done since Brady did it in 03 and 04. Um, Just to list the key free agents on the Buccaneers. So Gronk is a free agent, although he said he's going to come back. Levante David, I mean, that's not going to require a trivial contract. Leonard Fournette is a free agent. Shaq Barrett's a free agent. Antonio Brown's a free agent. And Domican Sue's a free agent. And Chris Godwin's (laughs) a free agent. So that to me is um you know a heart of their really skilled players on the team now of course some of us will take less money um here's the thing we always talk about re- regression to the mean you know tr- you know observed strength equals true strength plus error i actually don't think the bucks overperformed this year if anything i would say that the first half of this that that you know in some sense the second, the last eight, nine games that we saw the Bucs is probably who they are. So I actually think they could actually improve next year. I think they could be a better team than they were this last year. Now, you know, because usually it takes a year or two for people to gel together. And if they bring that solid core back, so that's it. I'm thinking the Bucks have a one third chance of repeating.
1: Oh my goodness gracious. That is really high.
2: And the betting that line's like, nine to one, by the way. Just sounds in.
1: like a fan to me. So go get your futures now, Eric.
2: I'm betting it now. I
1: want to do that receipt next week. Adi Weiner, what do you got? You
0: know, one of the things I love to talk about across sports is what feats are in the pantheon of pantheons of extraordinary uh, accomplishments. So you've got to think about what Brady has done in what uh, what is it comparable to in other sports so is it a record like you know Yogi Berra has 11 or 10 or 11 uh, world Ten. series rings Ten. we would argue this is probably more impressive than that because of the dynastic nature of the yankees um, but at what level is it? So where would you put it? Would you put it at, at Gretzky, Gretzky level hockey, which is ridiculous? Would you put it at, uh, you know, Joe DiMaggio's streak level? Or uh, what are we looking at? So I, I would say it's somewhere in that in that pantheon. Um, in fact, one would argue that it's, it's the type of thing you would expect to see. You know, once every 55 years is way, way more infrequent than that. This was certainly, I wouldn't expect if I rolled that back the clock 55 years to see anyone win eight, I wouldn't see anyone else win three. So, Adi, um, can you put
1: a little structure on that problem? I mean, I, th- I think you just had a conversation with a newspaper uh, writer. I did. I mean, so this, this. How would you so, structure it?
0: So a lot of people like to ask the question, how likely is it? And it's a silly question because uh, they like to put on all these extra layers, like what's the probability of something coming out of the sixth round of the draft, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I um, that's really not a good way to phrase it. But what I would like to f- phrase it is, what's the probability if we sort of went back 55 years ago and said, to just eliminate Tom Brady, how likely, how likely would it have been for, for someone to win 8 Super Bowl, Super Bowls he's won seven Se- seven Super Bowls and I think the right question right question would be uh, immediately you have to focus on quarterbacks and so the right way I think about it is how many quarterbacks over 55 years have won three Super Bowls and basically square that percentage and so whatever the problem so so I just got an email from uh, a reporter who's actually doing some work on this he counted out about 330 kind of regular quarterbacks over the last uh, 50 years or so and three of them uh, is it three or is it four? Four have won three or more. If you take out Brady, that'd be three. So it's basically one in a hundred squared is roughly what I would say is the chance of of it happening. One Jeez. in 10,000.
1: One of the interesting features of that problem is that uh, it sounds like the, the, isn't it the case that every additional Super Bowl you see a quarterback win you increase increase the likelihood your, your perception of his ability right. to do it right so it's <laughs> yeah. these things are so not independent right
0: it's, so it's, not independent so maybe actually a bit better than a little less than one and not unlike more likely than one in a hundred one in ten thousand but maybe one in two thousand one in three thousand okay. that's an extraordinarily rare event you're not talking about a person we're talking about over a career uh, yeah. for 55 years um so in other words if this were to happen 55 years from now if we should live that long, we won't see we won't see someone else do this. You know, we're not going <laughs> to see
2: somebody win two Super Bowls twenty years apart either. <laughs> no,
3: yeah. we won't. no, and I mean that's kind of the part the part that I – my kind of like thought for I guess yeah. uh, you know closer. I mean, a I don't think we'll ever see what Brady's I mean, he now has more Super Bowls than any team has ever won. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting fact. Um, but I think the most impressive part of it to me is he's won four out of the last seven. After turning 38 years old. And that part, I think, I mean, A, it's not going to be replicated, but I think what he will, what what Brady is doing is telling people like Aaron Rodgers, keep going. Keep yeah. going with this. I get, you know, so I, I I think one of Brady's long-term effects is going to be what Federer and, and, and you know, these tennis players are doing in tennis, is proving that you can do this still into a, at an age where like it was inconceivable a generation ago that people would be able to still be, you know, a, a, a successful kind of like cutting edge athlete into their forties. And I think he's going to inspire like the next generations. I think he's going to basically, his, his one of the most direct effects is what he's going to do to age trajectories for the NFL in general.
2: Yeah. I was just going to comment on something Adi was talking about is, is about comparing across sports. I will say the following um, in my mind, Brady's not the greatest player I've ever seen across sports. Like here, I'll give you an example. I don't think just because of his record, I don't think we'll ever see someone as great as Wayne Gretzky again. I think Wayne Gretzky in my mind is the greatest player. I mean, he scored twice as many points as anybody else in hockey. Um, you know, what is this thing you could take away his goals and he'd still be the leading scorer in the history of the <laughs> NHL. Yeah. And um, so I, I just, I just don't think so. And also, by the way, here's another comparison, Adi. Um, We have another player playing right now. We do right now. That's been to the same number of championships as Tom Brady. His name's LeBron James. Mm -hmm. LeBron's been to 10. Brady's been to 10. Mm -hmm. LeBron's four and six. Brady's seven and three. Is LeBron James any less impressive than Tom Brady is? Not to me. Not in my mind, he isn't. So, I, what's interesting is I don't think we'll ever see what Tom Brady has done again. But I don't think he's by far not the greatest player in his individual or her individual sport. I might argue Serena Williams may be the greatest player I've ever seen in any sport. I might I, think I, Tiger Woods for a five-year stretch was the greatest player I've ever seen in any Gretzky, sport. I
3: think, right? I, I, I th- I think what, I'm fine with Gretzky. Brady, yeah. Brady is the greatest winner in a team sport. And I don't think it's even close because you cut. Basically, he said you cut no regardless of competition. You cut however subset his games, however you want, even in the Super Bowl, seven and three. He basically wins at a 70 percent clip or more, no matter what how you cut the data. And we'll never see that again, I think. With the kind but, of sample size that he has, basically. The,
1: the team sport thing is it goes both ways. On yeah, the one hand, that's right. You know, he he, he he can't drag a team the way LeBron can because one guy can't do that. On the other hand, if he happens to have one of the all-time coaches um, on his side, then he's yeah. probably benefiting.
3: And that's that's the other thing, you know, it's going to be hard to replicate because, you know, I mean, even before this kind of matchup with KC, I did not put high odds on on Mahomes being able to catch Brady's you know, even, even even if it was six versus two this morning, I wouldn't buy Hodge because, you know, no. Brady, Brady happened to also come in at the same time that one of the young, like a young version of the great, one of the greatest coaches of all time was paired with him.
0: But and, you actually,
3: know, I- Andy Reid is not going to be able to coach for as long as Bill Belichick did even if Mahomes is able to sustain and stay with the same team for another 10, 15 years.
0: I just want to respond to Eric, because my my way of thinking was not talking about what it, what the rareness of the event had to say about the player. Just the sort of dramatic sort of right rareness, yeah, what yeah, that yeah. means. Yeah. And this feat is is remarkable. I mean, DiMaggio's feat is not never going to happen again. DiMaggio's an amazing player, but he's not the...
2: Best just remind I've you, just got. remind you, LeBron has played less seasons than Brady and has been to as many championships. Yeah. That's all I'm commenting on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so guys. My thought coming away from the game is, is just a general thought about models because last night was a game. It's rare that I feel if you if you roll it back, um, I would change my prediction dramatically. And usually, I think people who say that are just wrong and they're not. They don't realize how much variance there is. And instead, I think here we got really surprised, and yet it was knowable. Some people mm-hmm. knew this and it just has me thinking in general about this notion one definition of wisdom is is knowing when to apply a rule and when to not apply the rule when to apply rule a versus apply rule b and modeling is so much better than just intuition no question it's a great advance over intuition but there's something beyond that and it's probably this blend of models and experts and if you've got a model enough that you can lean on in normal circumstances, but you're enough of an expert to know when the exception is there. And so you drop the model or you use a different model or you, you know, you know, not to bet or you, whatever that requires a level of expertise. Most modelers don't have. And, but I think that's really the next place to go. That's, that's wisdom. And that, that as much as I advocate models and I believe it's better than almost all circumstances, You can do better than models alone, but it requires a real expertise.
2: Just building on what you said, Kate. I think one thing I learned was given the shape of Kansas City's offensive line, we should have at least widened the distribution of possible outcomes for that game. How about that? That's what I learned from what you just said and from what I saw. Eric Fisher was out. They were starting a guy. Another lineman was out we had to widen the distribution, not this wide. I would never have put 22 point Buccaneers win in my 95% interval. I wouldn't, if you had asked me for a 99% yeah, yeah. interval, this wouldn't have been in it either.
3: No. And I, I just to follow on both your points. I think a part of that kind of wisdom that I'm learning specifically in sports analytic as a sports analyst is kind of humility about uncertainty. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm always the guy and I'll, 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 I'll concede it. I'm always the guy who's like speaks too uns too, certainly about outcomes. I was the guy back when Golden State was running through people, you know, that like, oh, of course they're guaranteed to win the championship. You know, yeah. and I do, it, I do it with Alabama every year, and sometimes I'm shame, right. I mean, you shame. know, it's not like look, I'm –
1: Look, I had but, the same thought. It was just two weeks yeah. ago when growing into the conference championships, I was like taking shots at Eric's Tampa Bay team. I said you've got to – I said it on air in this show two weeks ago. Yeah. Every team has a story you can get behind. Well, maybe not Tampa Bay. <laughs> I mean, look at that. That's such bullshit. Yeah. I got, know anything it's
3: just yeah no that humility about uh the humility in the face of uncertainty i think is a key component to wisdom And by way, sports analytics it, maybe in life in general but find
1: certainly- another
2: sport also where a team can beat I, I don't remember the last time a team beat maybe the giants in whatever 2010 a team beat the one two and four seed by everybody's rankings i mean that's not easy to what it suggests yeah. is shane we have to be a little more humble about the amount of what we know, and we have to add a little more uncertainty into our confidence intervals because they beat the one, two, and four. And that's I do think that
3: do. is what makes kind of what Brady's done in football more impressive than what LeBron's done in basketball. Because I, good point, fair enough. I don't, I don't think you know. I, I, LeBron has won all those championships and much deserved, and been there as that often, much deserved, but always as part of a dominant team because that's what he
2: makes teams. And, and, that's, that's, what team, remember. and, and that's what teams and are six, in basketball. Four and six ain't seven and three.
1: All right, fellas, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. We're rolling into the interview segment. We have David Leonard from the New York Times, longtime writer there, both on the politics side, the business side, and a little bit on the sports side. So good conversation rolling up here in the fourth quarter. Come back and join us after the break.
2: You're listening to Wharton
1: Moneyball on
4: Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, traditionally our interview segment. We are delighted this week to invite to the show David Leonard. David is senior writer at the New York Times. He's been there for more than 20 years, covers a lot of topics, some of which are very close to our heart, and we are very happy to have him back on the show. David was one of our guests in the first year, and David, good to see you again. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Kate. It's great to be here. Listen, your title senior writer, but I'm, that's, I, I laugh when I see that because I think that probably reveals some negotiation you did with these guys a few years ago to get out of a bunch of other things and just do the <laughs> writing part of it. It's kind of what I'm guessing because you've done a lot of different things since you've been at the Times. Can you tell us what your portfolio includes now? Yes. Um,
4: one of the really nice things about the way the modern New York Times has worked is that they, they've they've allowed people to create career paths where you can go back and forth between editing and writing, that it's not just a one-way street. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, academia has some of that too, right? People go into to administration and then they mm-hmm. come out of it. And
1: um, uh, sometimes... They get dragged kicking and screaming. Into <laughs> yes. And then they run scre- happily laughing as they leave and go back.
4: You know, over the years, often reporters become editors, and they kind of never go back to to writing. Okay. Um, okay. But writing's really fun, and I think you're a better editor when you've been a reporter, and you're a better reporter when you've been an editor. And so, someone who's been a role model for me um, and a, and a friend, although we're not in the same area, is Sam Sifton. Um, who has also kind of done this. So, um, yeah, so I've done a mix of things. I, I came to the Times as a business reporter in 1999. And since then, I've written an economics column, which is probably when you and I met, Kate. I've been the Washington Bureau chief. I've been, uh, I've, I've run this fascinating committee that tried to think about how the Times should change its newsroom structure to deal with the digital revolution called the 2020 mm-hmm. report. I've been an op-ed columnist. And, and now... Um, I'm writing our our main morning newsletter, which is called The Morning. Uh, nice simple, nice simple name, um, which is really like a daily call, um, and it's also like a little um, modern newspaper. A team and I put it together, and. Our goal is to if, if you're just going to read one thing in the morning or you're only going to read a couple, um, we think this tries to put together what's going on in the world for you. And, and it's a whole lot of fun both to to be engaged with the news and also to be to be running what is this kind of new project at the Times and working with really a great group of people on it. <laughs>
1: Well, it seems like you've bounced around from one new project to another. To some, sen- in some sense, you did the the upshot. You were you not know, the founding editor for. The I upshot. was, yeah. How
4: did I leave that out? It was one of the great joys of my time at the Times. Yeah, after Nate Silver left the Times uh, in 2014, we were trying to decide, okay, well, what do we do? Nate Nate really showed that there is a huge market for this kind of quantitative journalism, and I was a, a big booster of Nate's internally. And so we realized, well, you know, Nate left to go to ESPN, um, but it didn't make, we should keep doing a lot of the same stuff he was doing, not exactly Mm -hmm. as he did it, but, but that's what the upshot was, it it came out of that. And we decided, well, one of our big strengths is that we have the really the best graphics journalism, visual journalism Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And so why don't we Give it uh, an even bigger platform, and and encourage folks who are graphic journalists to take the lead. And so sometimes people like me, whose background is in text, will will end up you know basically being caption writers for graphics. And and I came to realize, you know what? When you do a story with a graphic, you're kind of a caption writer for the graphics anyway, because that's yeah. what the vast majority of people are going to pay attention to, not your long strings of paragraphs. So um, it's hum- humbling,
1: isn't it? It's amazing yeah. what a good graphic will do. I mean.
4: Mm. But it's great too, right? Like there are a lot of, for, for a lot of things, words are the right way to tell it. And for other things, visuals are. And so that, yeah, that was the upshot which continues and continues to to, to turn out great journalism. I'm not a part of it anymore, but um, it was really, that was a joy.
1: So we've had Kevin Queely on the show before as well. Yeah. So one of the um, data visualization guys there who's just remarkable. But and on an upshot' because we start connecting back to Oh, is he considered not got co-founder that's, oh that's yeah great. um so what impact and this is probably tough to assess but we'd like to say you know increasingly journalism is going this way it's more analytics oriented it's um they're getting uh, the journalists themselves are getting being better educated about statistics do you, do you think this is true is it are we making that progress and a related question is there anything we can do to facilitate that? Because in some sense, we feel like sports is a great example. But even in sports journalism, the folks who are really good with the data part of it are still quite the minority.
4: I do think there's been a lot of progress. I mean, in the sports world, the quality of mainstream discussion of sports is so much better than it used to be. We can talk about some fun examples. I, I, I think mm-hmm. I think you see a lot of the same things in, in political journalism and economics journalism. I mean, I think... I think a lot of us just sort of speaking broadly as about journalism, I think we were too slow to talk about climate change as something that is happening and we spent too long treating it as kind of a political debate um, mm. uh, and engaging in both sides, mm-hmm. both siderism, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um but I think the increasing comfort with numbers and with visualization in journalism is part of why mo- many places have just gotten comfortable with the idea of look, climate change is happening. We're not going to, we're not gonna pretend it's not just because there are politicians who pretend it's not. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think that's an area where the, the kind of in, increasing use of statistics and journalism got journalism more comfortable with making a call that was important. Um, but there's also still a lot we haven't figured out. I mean, I, you know one thing that I really struggle with is how do we convey to people percentages that are neither zero, 50, nor 100? We, we know how to do those three, right? And we're actually pretty good mm-hmm. at like one and 99 as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but we're, we're just not that good at 80 and 75 and 60. Yeah. And I mean that yeah. literally when we're trying to tell people how to read an election model, but also when we're dealing with stories where it looks like one argument has a lot more evidence on its side, but it's not a slam dunk. It's, we're just We haven't figured out how to do that. And we're open to any yeah. advice.
1: So look, it's one. is hard. Audi's about to have something. I, mean, I got a. I got a couple things for you real quickly. One, uh, you've probably talked to Chip Heath at some point along the along the road. Chip's a professor out there at Stanford. He was at Chicago when I was at Chicago. Has a couple of great books, a few great books with his brother Dan. But his most recent project, I don't. I think this was public information. His most recent project is exactly that, representing numbers and and more compelling ways to do it and so chip who's a great writer and very thoughtful guy is is working on this exact issue david and he's going to have something um so i'd point you in his direction um dying to jump in here on that point i believe what you got yeah i guess
0: the uh way i like to think about the numbers that give problems are not zero it's not really zero 50 75 109 it's uh the difference between one percent and 0.1 percent which are the ones that the the public and 0.01 percent. Most of the public doesn't really comprehend that there's a vast difference between the sizes, the magnitudes of those numbers. They just treat them as small. Um, and 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 often there's the sort of the reverse side. Someone people are quite scared of a one percent probability of a bad outcome, but if you rephrase it as 99 percent probability of a good outcome, they're somehow automatically adjusted happily to it. And you know, I, I made that point on our show. at Kate's like, "That's that's a huge problem right there. That's it, <laughs> right?" Um, and that's the problem that I see in, in the number side. And But I think from the point of view of conveying things to the general public, the hardest part that I, th- I think that the newspapers are really, really poor at this is conveying uncertainty. So every list has a top mm-hmm. and every list has a bottom. Every estimate exists. But what's very difficult to do is to explain the uncertainty in that ex- uh, in that in that in those numbers and what that really means. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and we, we, we often just jump on the term statistical significance without really quite understanding what that is. Mm-hmm. And particularly with the more recent uh, deluge of data coming out of COVID analyses, there's an, a misplaced um, understanding, lack of understanding that just because something is statistically insignificant doesn't mean it's insignificant. There's this, this terrible uh, um, misassessment of the effect of sample size and power Um, And this is just just because something isn't studied doesn't mean we know the answer to it. It's not not real.
4: And that's, I think, related to my point. Correct me if it's not. But but to me, it's this idea that, well, okay, just because someone doesn't just because something doesn't rise to the level of statistical significance doesn't necessarily mean that we know nothing about it, right? And I think sometimes we're too quick to go from, well, okay, that wasn't statistically significant, so thus it means it's basically a coin flip, right? <laughs> Which is just
1: not the case. Well, I'm But, I'm gonna, but, it's, I but it's, want- it's real tough. It's, I mean, it's a tough line to navigate, right? Because now you're opening up, you can talk about anything. And one of the challenges newspapers have had in recent years is covering science and reporting stuff a little too early and giving too much profile to stuff that's not very well established. And so... I mean, Adi's right. And there's been some, probably some policy mistakes around COVID because people weren't reacting early enough, but one can react too too soon. Yes, absolutely.
4: I think one of the important things here is, there aren't easy answers to this. It's not like, well, if only we just deal with facts, we'll figure this out. Well,
1: that's not mm-hmm. that's, right. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right.
4: Like, yes, we should deal in facts. I'll stipulate that, right? We when when people tell outright lies, we should we should report them as lies or falsehoods or whatever word we want to use. But but there are also a set of really difficult questions here like um, uh, you know, when does the evidence point in one direction? When do we know almost nothing? When are we almost certain, but there's still a five or a one or a 0.1 or a 0.01% chance? Mm-hmm. And how do we mm-hmm. distinguish among them? These are, these are hard calls.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I I'm love bodies' gonna... issue as well about uncertainty. I mean, communication yeah, the
4: thing is, is
0: I mean, the, the, one of the b- biggest problems is, is that there's a huge mistaken belief that a p-value, which is this classically important idea that tells you that the strength of the evidence against the null hypothesis and that's how we, you know we prove something to be real is if we can if we can essentially show that the null hypothesis is, does a terrible job of explaining the data. And the p-value represents how badly the do, null hypothesis is explaining the data. but what I hear from the newspaper is the p-value is the probability the null hypothesis is true. And that is just, just fantastically wrong yet, it, and because it gives you this idea that if the p-value is 0.1, then there's a very, there's a still, it's not significantly significant, but it's still reasonably likely that it's true, but actually not at all, not at all.
4: My version of the small big numbers thing is I, I basically have tried to squeeze out any really big, almost all really big numbers from my writing. the number 200 billion versus Mm -hmm. 3 trillion versus Mm. 75 million, those numbers, most people see something like that and they just see big number. And so it's not that we should never use 200 billion, but we have to give people context. Uh, Mm -hmm. By itself, right, Mm -hmm. Um, 0.001 or 0.01 is virtually meaningless. And likewise, Mm -hmm. by itself, these really
1: big numbers, they just don't give people context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so speaking of big numbers we want to get your take on uh, a minor sporting event that happened over the weekend so uh one of the one of the reasons it's fun to talk to you davis is that even though you're a super serious journalist you've also um got an interest on the sport side of things and we know you will have thoughts on the super bowl one of the numbers that people are talking about today is i think it's like 476 which 476 yards patrick mahomes ran um, before throwing the ball last night. Oh, my it was goodness. 56 attempts or whatever it was. And we don't, none of us, I mean, most of us don't have context for like what's normal, but that's like the highest anyone all year, something like that. And it just seems like a, a big number. Also, by the way, talking about images and data visualization, there was a, we can talk about that number, and it's pretty impressive, but then there's a figure out there, Michael Lopez, who runs uh, the stats group for the NFL tweeted a figure and it's all the roots. You know, they track these guys. So they have the exact path that Mahomes took for each pass. And it's this elaborate, ridiculous saying. And then they had this, a, a similar picture for Brady. And it's this little bitty little sliver. Everything's tidy, barely went anywhere. The contrast is un- unbelievable. It's literally just, it's just motion tracking. It's all, you didn't need Kevin Quealy to put this thing together, but it's stunning how compelling it is. Other than Pat Mahomes running for his life all day long, what were your takeaways from last night's game?
4: Well, it was it was actually one of the it, it, strategically it was one of the less interesting games of the playoffs, right? I mean, one team oh, just yeah. whooped the other. Um, I yeah. don't doubt that someone could write a great strategic piece about um, how Tampa Bay's defensive line dominated Kansas City's offensive line, and and as many others have pointed out, Kansas City's offensive line was was badly badly um, decimated by by injuries, right? right? um, both short and longer term injuries. So, um, and that, that, to me is really what decided the game, you know, part of, mm-hmm. part, I'm a Patriots fan. Um, so, you know, for me, like a lot of Patriots fans, I was rooting for the Buccaneers, but there was also this, this bit of wistfulness, right? This is the 10th time in the last 20 years <laughs> I've watched Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, And it's the first time I didn't care that much. I was rooting for him, but I didn't care that much. Um, uh, yeah. Uh and and so clearly, I mean, the game's a testament to Todd Bowles, the Tampa defensive coordinator, and and those players. Mm-hmm. They just did a phenomenal job. And Brady played, mm-hmm. um, Brady played pretty well, well enough. Um mm-hmm. uh I mean the the I'll I'll tell you, I realize I'm citing your own research back to you, but what the Super Bowl and the Final Four just kind of really, really hammered home to me again is um NFL teams don't know how to draft the very best quarterbacks at the top of the draft. And mm-hmm. you know, when you and Dick Thaler wrote that paper, how long ago was it? Almost 20 years?
1: Well, the first manuscript was out probably I don't know, oh three, oh four or something like that.
4: I mean, it was true then, as I don't need to tell you, but boy, have you ever seen a season that highlighted it better than this one, right? I mean, you've got the Super
1: Bowl between Mahomes, who was where was Mahomes picked? Yeah, eight. It, so, so he was the early first round, but he wasn't, the, he wasn't the top guy. There were guys taken above him.
4: There were guys taken above him and Brady and, you know, and then you had Josh Allen also not the first quarterback mm-hmm. taken that year. Um, uh, and you had uh, Drew, uh, Aaron Rodgers, right. Who, who was one of your famous examples who the uh, the 49ers were choosing between two quarterbacks that year. They couldn't decide between Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers, mm-hmm. And they took um, they took Alex Smith. And Aaron Rodgers didn't fall to two. He, he fell to what? 20. Um, Late. And, and so, and then you look at the guys who are the number one picks lately and just so many of them don't look that good. I mean, Jared Goff and, uh, or was he a two? No, Goff Mm -hmm. was a one. Jared Goff, Carson Wentz was a two. Um, uh, Baker Mayfield was pretty good, but it's just, it's kind of, it's just amazing how strongly this pattern has asserted itself. And I feel like this year's Super Bowl was kind of, was, was, in some ways, was a celebration of great quarterbacks who aren't the first
1: quarterback taken in the draft. Well, real quickly, Adi, um, just hearing you go through those examples, I can't help it. it. The the main takeaway is not that, you know, it's no crime to not be good at this because it's so hard. I mean, it's just so ridiculously hard. The crime is not realizing how difficult it is and thinking every year you get convinced that you know Every year, it's the same thing. You get convinced that you know which one of these guys is going to be
0: better. Yeah, I just would respond by saying just this is true. I think across across sports, usually the field is has more probability than the top. Um, that's true in golf. If you're going to have to predict a winner, I think generally in the beginning of and even maybe basketball, is like the only sport where if you had to pick the top team, um, they might have more probability either winning the, the championship or the top the first uh, pick in the draft. Um, that's the sufficiently compressed or difficult, but usually even in in, in football, the, If I had to take any, everybody else in the, in the draft, except for the the first quarterback to take, and I think I'm going to always, not always win, but certainly have a better probability.
4: And and I think there are two reasons that's probably true in basketball. One, one player can dominate a game in a way that he or she can't in many other Mm -hmm. sports. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's also um, there's been some work done. Maybe you guys know it. I can't remember who's done it about how basketball is sort of the least random of sports because mm-hmm. it involves so many trials again and again and again. Whereas right, in hockey right, right. or soccer, one bad bounce can determine the game. It can't it's it's sort of not the case in basketball unless it was basically a unless it was basically a
1: toggle. So Michael no. Mobison used to be the credit suisse. He's on, in a different outfit now, but Michael Mobison, who's a a financial analyst but he's a brilliant guy and he has all these great white papers on all these topics but that white paper turned into a book so he's got a book called "The success equation came out in the late 2000s 2009 2010 something And he put all the sports his point was talking about predictability in general but he used sports as an illustration of that but speaking of predictability this is kind of my i drove home from the game last night thinking man i mean I, it's been a long time since I've been that surprised. I mean, funny things happen in football, right? Teams that are supposed to win don't win all the time. But rarely do you come away with a team beaten as handily and as unexpectedly as that, in my in my opinion. And and this is what it makes me wonder: if they got beat that solidly, it wasn't fluky at all, and it wasn't close, it should have been more predictable. And there were people out there who did predicted but the market was three the and all the analysts were right there on top of it CP body was two or something and then they end up you know not only didn't win but they lost by 22 but it wasn't fluky it was like very legit and, it, and, and i'm i just come away musing about the value of models and what's on the other side of models so i study decision making i believe models help improve decision making but then is there something on the other side of models where you know when to apply the model, when not to, when to apply model A versus model B, when to make the exceptions? It's really hard. I, I think it's really hard. And I don't want to say, look, um, we can tell stories and so therefore it should have been knowable ahead of time. But I do this one more than any other game that I can remember in a long time does feel like it should have been knowable. Adi's going to correct me on all this but i'm just well i'm i'm going to
0: jump on you because i'm going to ask you what would massey peabody give if the game were repeated on sunday would you do would you put tampa bay at minus eight because that's the way you're talking
1: no the model wouldn't the model would move the model wouldn't but it wouldn't move that
0: much that's right
1: no well do you really believe that or
0: is that is that something that you're just telling backwards by looking at every
1: model is incomplete and if you know where the holes are and you know that those holes are especially relevant in a given situation then you know the model's bad for that Okay situation. let me
0: ask you I'll ask both of you guys because I'm not going to have an opinion right if this game were repeated in say 2 weeks from now on a Sunday would you really pick Tampa Bay to, forget your models would you would you pick Tampa Bay to just blow it over again same teams or, same team. same same same, same player situation
1: yep no no experience with the first game we're just going to no. kind of wipe our memory and we're going to go do it again. We're going to
0: wipe our memory. It's as if we rolled it back. I mean, you saw the game outcome, right? Yeah. See, now, Adi, this, you know, this was, is- How much
1: of that was random? Yes, my this question. is- Okay. I'm, so I'm, I'm, we're, we're interviewing Leonhardt, but we're- So David, I do want- I figured you would actually be interested in, in this stuff because you used to think a lot about these things. But Adi, this is my point because all the time, all the time, I feel like, no, I'm going to go to the same prediction. You know, just that's just chance. I don't feel that way today. I feel like- I know no, you don't. Hell no. I would go I'll go dadgum Tampa minus seven or something. If if we could just do this one again. Absolutely. What do you think, David? What's your reaction to this? So we're dealing with two hypotheticals. I actually think they're quite
4: different. In the hypothetical where we pretend that never happened and we want to rerun it again yesterday, Sunday, um, I'd I'd take Tampa Bay, right? And I'd I'd even, you know, if I don't bet on sports, but if I did, I'd be willing to bet a significant amount of money. (laughs) Um, and and the reason is I think that it seems clear we understand why Tampa won which is they had a very good defense and Kansas City had a weak offensive line and Tampa Bay came up with a strategy that exploited that weakness and Kansas City did not come up with a strategy that reduced that weakness and so if you play the exact same game again I think Tampa wins it you know I don't know seven eight nine out of ten yeah yeah,
1: Um, yeah
4: If you tell me that they got to experience the game right. and then play right. again in two weeks, mm-hmm. then I, I moved the line, right? It was, it was three. Maybe I move it to a pick em. But I don't think, oh yeah, Tampa Bay is going to come in and do that. Because I, I just think, I mean, I, look, I think the Tampa coaching staff outperformed the Kansas City coaching staff. And I think that is the most likely explanation. The same way it can mm-hmm. happen in a war, it can happen in a political campaign. Mm-hmm. I think they had a better strategy and mm-hmm. so if 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 they got to run it again knowing what happened uh, uh, i'm not so sure that it happens again but I, but i but i'm not saying it was foreseeable but i get why it happened mm-hmm. well, i guess
0: i guess my reaction would be to 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 give tampa bay the, the favorite but not nearly by 7 i somehow i'm mm-hmm. more reliable i sort of i'm convinced that the models are what the models are saying have more value than than uh, what we're seeing I mean cuz I think I saw a lot of penalties there. I I saw the game was really didn't get out of hand until late in the third quarter, not not so much earlier. And I think a lot of that had to do with those penalties and if you roll it again, you wouldn't
1: see that. Oh, uh, I I don't feel this way at all. I don't, yeah, really don't okay. feel this way at all. That uh, the, the penalties felt egregious at the time and then over the over the course of the game they felt almost irrelevant. But but anyway, people can disagree with that. But this whole modeling question, I mean, look I, I i get that it's hard but it's not very often that it, it makes me well we look let's acknowledge the best model in the world is a be- not a model but the best predictor in the world for for football or any sport is the betting line yeah. and the bet but the betting line is only going to explain what like half the variance or 0.6 or something like that so there's a lot of variance unexplained Wait, and most, people, most people can't can, most people can't get that but Last night, you come away feeling like someone knew this. Someone made a lot of money of this because someone knew it. But listen, let's, let's change gears, but on models, because there's been another real big thing going on in the world for the last year that models have either informed or not informed very well. And I know you've been paying a lot of attention to it, David. So if, as part of one of your morning emails at the New York Times, you talked about, look, we're, some people are missing the, the goal here, which is to reduce hospitalizations, reduce deaths, even if we have a partially... Um, efficacious vaccine, we're gonna do that. So let's just get shots in arms. Don't worry about getting 0.95. If you can get 0.6 today, it's better than 0.95 three weeks from now. This kind of argument, We. this is the kind of thing we've been saying over the over this past year. You've been paying a lot of attention to COVID right now. Um, what do you think the most important issue is in you the, the battle, at least in the United States, battle on COVID?
4: I think there are two. Um... Let's start with vaccinations, even though it's sequentially the second one, because that's where you started. I think the public discussion about vaccinations is far too negative. And I think that I think the overly negative tenor has real costs. I think it has public health costs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you you were just talking about some of these things. I I think the important thing to to focus on right now is um, if you count the Russian vaccine, we've now got six vaccines for which we have something like public data. Now the quality of that data is a little bit variable, right? Some is CDC data that, where they've released lots of data and independent people have looked at it. Some is the companies have released press, uh, have released press releases with numbers, but, but it's still, it's six vaccines. And basically every single one of them, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, uh, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca and uh, Sputnik V from Russia, mm-hmm. uh, essentially every single one of them um, uh, has eliminated death um, mm-hmm. and has nearly eliminated, um, or, or I, I should say, radically reduced um, mm-hmm. hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So let me let me reemphasize that every single one <laughs> of these six vaccines has um, m- eliminated death and radically reduced hospitalization. So what? How would we describe an illness that is contagious? Um, uh, that doesn't kill people. Or let's let's say that research trials are not perfect replications of the real world. So let's say kills very few people um, relative to how many people get it um, and hospitalizes somewhat more, uh, but still um, very few people. How would we describe that? Well, we describe that as a mild form of the flu. That is a mm-hmm. mild form of the flu. Th- mm-hmm. There is room for these vaccines to work considerably well less to work considerably less well than they worked in their research trials when they get in the real world considerably less well, and still make COVID much less bad than an annual flu season. Okay. And so mm-hmm. I think the message that we should be hearing and giving on the vaccines are they are the end to this nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, maybe future data will be worse maybe the variants uh, will change this. But so far, when we've had vaccine trials against the variants, it's still been true. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're getting way too hung up on, uh, does uh, does it completely eliminate COVID for everyone, or does it still allow some number of mild cases? Mm -hmm. Uh, And this includes uh, some members of academia. It includes uh, journalism, my field. It includes lots of places. We are sort of missing the forest for the trees here. We're not going to get rid of coronaviruses. They've existed for decades, probably for centuries. We need to turn this into something normal. Mm-hmm. And um, right now we're kind of obsessing over, well, um, uh, that doesn't look good. It just turned COVID into a, a mild flu. Turning COVID into a mild flu, that's the ball game. If we do yeah, that, yeah. we win. And so right. there's my speech.
0: Right. The thing about, <laughs> about, David, I wanted to get your pitch on this is that there's so much coming out of the media saying that even if you take the vaccine, you still have to basically keep your life exactly as shitty as it is now. <laughs> right. And that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And it's funny because um, there's a, it's, it's like it's, it's two-sided. I mean, none of these trials had the power, and I mean statistical power, to actually measure transmittability because they just weren't designed that way. They had to get them out as fast as they could. They couldn't actually see whether people who got infected, who were on the placebo, who were on the, the, the treatment arm or the study was actually going to transmit it. So taking this absence of information, absence of evidence, the media has amplified this into evidence of absence. And it's a disaster because most people are absolutely terrified. And I know many, many seniors in particular who have taken the vaccine who still refuse to see anyone because they've been told that they could have the vaccine, have the virus and spread it to all kinds of other people. That is, I don't know the answer to that because again, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But much of what we know about virology and vaccines for the many diseases that have been treated this way show that this is going to be essentially a non-issue. Yet no one's there's nobody willing to stand up and say it, particularly on the pages of The New York Times.
4: Well, I think so. I I think that some I think some people are. Um, uh, I I also think that. uh... Look, as I said, I have some criticisms of how my industry has has covered this. Um, I don't think the Times has been different from other places on it, um, but I would say that a lot of that comes also from what we're hearing from from experts. Meaning, there are also a lot of experts running around saying um, versions of, well, don't go, you know, you get the vaccine, you shouldn't change your behavior at all, right? So I don't I don't think this is a breakdown where the experts have the right message and we in journalism right. are getting it wrong. Yeah, I no, I think. I agree. I think it's a more systemic thing but look i agree with you the message is off like when when two people are vaccinated um can they then get together together without masks and share a meal my view is yes they can not only is that my view but i think when you when you actually talk to a lot of public health people and experts and probably some journalists that's probably the message they're gonna end up giving to their own family um, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think it's the message that we should be giving publicly. Julia Marcus at Harvard Medical School is fantastic on this point. She's written for the Atlantic. You guys should have her on the show. She, you know, she sort of, so she points out, look, you don't get people excited to, to go get a vaccine and do all this if you tell them, by the way, once you get the vaccine, um, uh, nothing <laughs> changes, right? Uh, right. Uh, and, and so look, w- when you get the vaccine, you should continue to wear a mask in public um, even though it's probably unnecessary from a health standpoint, you should do that because we need to still have mask wear, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I don't have the vaccine. And so w- what that means is it's important for me to still be able to go to places where I'm wearing a mask and others are wearing a mask. And if the sort of mask norm breaks down even more than it has been in the United States, that would be bad. So yes, once you get the vaccine, please continue wearing a mask in public. But Um, based on all the information we have right now, you know what else you can do? You can go over to your friend's house who's also had the vaccine and gotten both shots and waited the two or three weeks or whatever it is to get full immunity. So once you've done all that, you can go over to your friend's house who's also had the vaccine and you can have an indoor meal (laughs) and not worry about it. All of the evidence says that. I, I can't tell you it is absolutely the case that you're taking no risk, but you know what? You were already taking risk before. Right. Before you might've gotten the flu. And people die of the flu, right? And so, but what it looks like is once you're vaccinated, COVID is less dangerous than the ordinary flu. Um, and and uh, we look, the fact that we've gotten this been so negative about this message means that people are reluctant to take the vaccine. They're too worried about side effects. They think, well, why should I take the shot that might cause side effects and that won't even improve my life? And what that means is we are doing real public health damage by by basically talking down the vaccine yep, so much.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Listen, uh, another topic that you've spoken about recently or written about recently in your morning emails is the variants we're seeing in how states are delivering these vaccines. And you called it, I forget exactly, it was like a, it's a lefty problem or something. And you raise this very interesting Point, we've been talking about how, man, in some places they're really killing and other places they aren't. And you put kind of a political layer on top of it and said some of the places that you wouldn't have expected to be good because they were tragic on, when this thing first came out have actually gotten good with the vaccine and vice versa. These places like New York or California have tripped all over themselves trying to be fair and the process they just haven't delivered as much. Let me give you just a couple of quick statistical observations from the CDC today the residents of Alaska and West Virginia are about twice as likely to have been vaccinated as the residents of just the bottom of the list here, Alabama, Kansas, Missouri, twice, twice, by dint of where you are a citizen. It's remarkable the variation we're seeing out there. It is remarkable. Um,
4: and look, there are a lot of states um, and countries, uh, well, let's take let's stay on states. There are a lot of states, both. Republican-run and Democratic-run that are doing poorly with the vaccine. You just mm-hmm. named a couple: Alabama, Missouri, um, California, New York. Right? Yeah. Those are
0: Massachusetts. Those. Terrible.
4: There are a whole bu- so there are, so you can find examples on both sides. I certainly don't want to suggest that all the Republican-run states are doing well and all the Democratic yeah, run yeah, states doing right. badly. But I do think there's a political angle here, which is it is hard to find uh, almost anywhere in the world a progressive government that is really killing it right now in a good way, crushing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like what are the countries that are doing that have the highest vaccination rates? It's Israel um, run by a right-wing government. It's the United Arab Emirates. No one's idea of a progressive paradise. Um, It's uh, the UK, right? Run by the somewhat Trumpy Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. Um, In the United States, it's West Virginia and Alaska. And um, I think part of what's happened here is it's not all politics. But I think part of what's happened here is that um, progressive run states who who have done a much progressive run states and countries have done a much, much better job at um, holding down the outbreaks. Right. The countries that tended to have the worst outbreaks tend to be run by populist right wingers, including the United States um the 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 states and countries that have uh, more progressive and technocratic governments are just they're they're getting tripped up over process so -hmm. the eu is not willing to just impose rules and tell member states what to do they want to hear what the member states want Mm -hmm. california and new york are are worrying about wait a second we can't let anyone get the vaccine who 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 isn't yet in the right place in line and governor cuomo in new york threatened penalties. And, you know, that's, if you make it so complicated that doctors and nurses and clinics are freaked out about, oh my goodness, is this someone, is this someone who shouldn't be getting the vaccine? You're just going to be a lot slower at it. And so I think one of the really interesting challenges for the Biden administration, an administration that cares a lot about equity and about fairness, really good, those are good values. Can they, can they make sure that doesn't get in the way of actually getting vaccines into people's arms? And mm-hmm. I saw a tweet this week from a politician in New York State, um, and I'm forgetting the exact language, but it was something like, good news, New York State has just announced that these, I think the number may have been 100, but you know, if it were 20, the point's the same. Pre-existing conditions will now or soon qualify to get the vaccine." And I thought to myself, that's not good news. Good news would be we're, no. we're going to start vaccinating everyone who's 64 and older, and then mm-hmm. next week we're going to go to 63, and then next week we're right. going to go to 62. Right. And I think it's important to say here that this, this overcomplication, will, will the biggest cost will be borne by the most vulnerable members of our society. Because mm. who are the 64-year-olds um, who are most vulnerable to dying of COVID? They are the 64 year olds who come from poor communities. They're the 64 year olds in black and Latino communities. And if we have a slow vaccine rollout because we think that we're being more equitable, we'll actually end up being less equitable. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agreed. David, thank you. And thanks for the time today. We've taken a little bit more than we meant to, but it's always fun to talk with you. One last question before you go, uh, we're talking about vaccines. We can look, we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, at least we think we can when sports do roll back around what sport are you most looking forward to taking in and kind of whatever old school way you used to take it that's a great question
4: football is my favorite sport to watch on television but Mm -hmm. my favorite sport to go be uh to go be an actual fan at is baseball so Mm -hmm. I am really looking forward it's it's cold right now it's February I am are you a
0: Red Sox fan or
4: (laughs) I'm a Red Sox fan I'm a New Yorker who lived for six years as a child in Boston and and uh although it's a little stuck. bit hard to be excited about the Red Sox right now. So I've actually, it doesn't need to be the Red Sox. I'm just looking forward to getting
1: out to a ballpark
4: yeah. um, uh, uh, and watching, watching a game.
1: Awesome. Thanks for the time. Very much. Always it's a pleasure to talk to you. David. Thank you both. It's really a treat to be on the show. Absolutely. David Leonard, senior writer at New York times. And that has been another full episode of what money about two hours. We do it every week here on Sirius XM for the whole team, Audie Weiner, who's been with me here in this last quarter, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, our producer, Matty D, our associate producer, Dion Simpson. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.